Hi everyone. So good morning. A uh, couple of or a few announcements. <clears throat> uh, next Tuesday is the midterm, midterm two. Uh, normal time. It covers the carbohydrate lecture to the last lecture. Okay. Uh, today's lecture is not on it. Whatever we cover today, I'm going to cover CRISPR-Cas9 this morning which was on the slides of the last lecture, but because we didn't cover it last class, CRISPR-Cas9 will not be on, on the midterm. Okay, so basically whatever I got up to last class. A uh, couple other things you want to bear in mind, and this is all in the Moodle, so don't feel like you need to scribble it down. Um, we're fortunately in one of only two rooms now, instead of split up across four rooms. If your last name's A through K, you're in here. If your last name's L through Z, you're in Curtis Lecture Hall. I presume this is I uh, and not L. Um, I mean, this, this, this is what it says on the room assignment. I think it's an I, so let's hope it's an I. Um, we have normal office hours today, uh, which is 10.30, 11.30, first floor LSB. I've also set up an online office hours tomorrow between 2 and 3 p.m. if you have questions. And I plan to also set one up on Monday, but I haven't figured out a time for that yet. So uh, just check the Moodle, and you'll see another announcement for that. Okay. So before I get into lecture, today's lecture, I want to finish a little bit about um, last lecture. So we basically got up to this idea of, of next generation sequencing. Um, we talked about Sanger sequencing in some in some depth, and uh, I put a movie up for that on the Moodle. I hope that's helpful. I also put the movie I had in, of, of PCR, so hopefully that's helpful also. Um, just to very briefly go over this, the, the, the main concept that I want to cover on this is basically these are all Sanger sequencing. Each individual dot, this is basically a, a, a picture that is being viewed by a, a, a micro, on a, under a microscope with a very sensitive camera. And each dot corresponds to an individual sequencing reaction. And you're going to have millions of these. Millions of these sequencing reactions spread across the slide. We're just zooming in on one region of it. Each dot is basically a different piece of template that fell onto the slide in that place. And it was covalently linked there. And then they're basically doing sequencing reactions on each dot, whereas instead of looking for bands on a gel, you're looking for an order of colors. So basically, the, 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 the colors that come up in each dot after one round of dideoxy incorporation will tell you what the particular nucleotide is uh, on that sequence in that, in that position. So in the first panel, we're highlighting two, di two different dots. For this dot, the first nucleotide in the sequence is T. For this dot, the first nucleotide in the sequence is C. And each dot on here has its own sequence going. So this one would be a G. This one would be an A. And then the computer keeps track of all the different dots, colors, that was assigned to each dot after the first round of dideoxy incorporation. And then it washes all that off and moves to unblocks the reaction and gets ready for the second round of dideoxy incorporation. And then the dots change color based on what the next nucleotide is. 
And so the idea is basically, this is also called, we call this deep sequencing or massively, another more illustrative term is massively parallel sequencing. We are performing a massive sequencing reaction of millions of sequencing reactions in parallel, all at the same time. And because they're separated in two-dimensional space, different dots on the slide, you can actually uh, keep track of all these different sequencing reactions. And then a computer takes all the sequencing reactions, asks you which species this is, maps all the sequencing reactions to the known sequence for that species. And if this was a person, well, then they'll say, yeah, this person is, based on our analysis of the sequencing data, this person's mother was of Irish ancestry and their father was of North Indian ancestry and uh, this person has a 25% chance of having heart disease when they, you know what I mean? You can basically map an entire genome and all the phenotypes associated with that. So it's pretty cool, it's exciting and it's becoming more and more commonplace. It used to be, uh, it used to be very expensive and this is now down to the cost of Couple car payments. Yeah. It does use. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. You're right, it doesn't. Sorry, my bad. But it does use some way of Right, they're blocked. Okay, so instead of being blocked by having a dideoxy, thank you. Instead of being blocked by having a dideoxy, they're just chemically, they're reversibly chemically blocked. So you add the next nucleotide on that has a certain color, and that nucleotide has a chemical block on the three prime end that doesn't let the next nucleotide go on until you note what that uh, newly incorporated nucleotide was. And then you remove the chemical blocks, and now that lets you put on the next nucleotide. So thank you, that's an important distinction. So, yeah, so this massive parallel sequencing, uh, I guess, doesn't use the dideoxys, but it, in a fashion, it's somewhat conceptually similar in that, uh, at least for a time, you can't add another nucleotide onto the three prime end. But that's, the important thing about this method is that it's reversible. And once you add the chemical that removes that chemical block, you can now add the next nucleotide. But it also relies on a primer extension, and rel uh, relies on a template. So, um, I didn't get a chance to talk about this last night, or I did get a chance to talk, sorry, I'm mixing things up. Last night I, gave, I was at a talk on this, and I actually saw some people here, there. That's pretty cool. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk about this much last class. So this is something that's come on really in the last, it was discovered maybe three or four years ago, and it's become, it's just gone crazy in the last two or three years. Um, so the idea is, is the, the, the problem that's trying to be solved is if I want to make a, you know, we've got these three billion bases of DNA in a human genome. If I wanted to make an edit at a particular spot and not anywhere else, that's exceedingly difficult, right? We can't actually get in there with tweezers and, and do this. It's too small. And so this CRISPR-Cas9 is now synonymous with basically the ability to go into genomes and make particular edits at particular sites. So to understand how that works, you have to understand a little bit first what CRISPR-Cas9 is referring to. So people that were studying, it started out 
in work that was done by people in studying bacteria that grow in salt marshes. They um, were looking at the genomes of halophiles, these bacteria that grow in, in very salty conditions. And the first thing that was noticed was region, a region of the genome where basically these black boxes correspond to sequences that are identical. Okay, so you'd have this black box that was a particular sequence, and then a, this red box corresponds to, a, a, at that point, unknown, a different sequence. But then that black box sequence would appear again. It was a repeat. And then a new sequence, and then the, the same sequence, the black box sequence again, black diamond. And then a new sequence, same sequence, new sequence, same sequence. They didn't know what this was. But it was basically a region of the genome where there were unknown sequences uh, flanked or bordered by repeated sequences over and over. And it was just a novelty at the time. People didn't really understand what it was until someone took these sequences between the black boxes and realized, did a homology search, and realized that they are sequences that come from vir bacterial viruses. So these are basically memories, like genetic, a genetic memory of a previous infection. And that's what happens in this system. So basically what happens is Bacteria get, get infected by viruses, same as us. Here's a, a virus infecting a bacteria. It injects its G DNA into the uh, genome, into the cell, sorry. And often that infection will kill the bacteria. But sometimes the bacteria might withstand the infection. It may fight the infection. And in, when it does that, it takes a little piece of the phage's DNA and inserts it into this, what we call this CRISPR locus, right? So clustered, regularly interspersed palindromic repeats is what CRISPR stands for. So it's a cluster of, of DNA sequences. They're regularly interspaced. That means there's like this regulated spacing between uh, these palindromic repeats, these repeat sequences. Okay, so that's what CRISPR stands for. Basically, they took this phage DNA and they made a new repeat sequence. So basically, they put that phage DNA sequence into the chromosome and then added a new black box repeat sequence after it. And what happens is this long locus, there's a promoter here, you can see it. This whole thing gets transcribed into one long RNA, and we call that the pre-CRISPR RNA, like this. There's some editing machinery, there's some, these, and that's encoded in these CAS genes. This is CRISPR-associated genes, CAS, okay? One of these CAS genes recognizes this long sequence by the black sequences. The black sequences form these hairpins, okay? We've talked about that. When it's transcribed in RNA, you make these hairpins, and one of these Cas genes recognizes that and chops these up into little bits. Okay? Very similar conceptually, at least, to what we talked about last class when we were talking about uh, primary microRNAs get, getting processed by Drosha and microprocessor into the pre-microRNAs. So now you've got these individual kind of guide RNAs that get loaded into a Cas protein. And the famous one is Cas9. And what that, this is basically an immune surveillance molecule now. What it's doing is that it's looking for DNA that's being brought into the cell that has complementary, complementarity to these sequences that are effectively memories of past infections. And what happens is if a virus tries to infect this cell again and it injects its DNA into this cell, well, this strain of bacteria has previously survived that infection. So thus it has a Cas9 CRISPR guide RNA that has complementarity. Its, its RNA sequence is 
complementarity to that DNA sequence. And when that happens, when a match is made, the uh, CRISPR-Cas9 complex cuts that, genome, cuts that viral DNA. It cleaves it. A double-stranded, blunt-end break. And when that happens, the phage DNA is degraded. It's destroyed. Okay? So basically, this is a way that bacteria protect themselves against viruses. It's, it's said to be adaptive, meaning adaptive means, so there's diff two different types of immu immunity, right? There's adaptive immunity and innate immunity. Innate immunity is something that doesn't adapt. It's just like your skin, right? Your skin protects you against viruses, but it's not very specific. But your antibodies, your memory B cells, your, your, the, what vaccination is based on, when you get vaccinated, you create a memory of that infection. And now you've adapted your immune system to handle that infection again. That's, this is adaptive, right? The, the bacteria gets infected by this virus. It creates a memory of the virus in this CRISPR locus. And now it's on the lookout for that virus again. Okay, so it's adaptive. This was originally worked out by people. The actual, uh, so I talked a little bit about these salt marshes and they figured out these repeats. This defense against, the, 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 the realization that this is actually defending against phages and bacteria was figured out by people who were studying how to grow, how to make yogurt. So um, this was done by scientists at uh, basically a, a subsidiary of DuPont. You know, they were basically trying to figure out how to keep their bacteria from getting infected by viruses, which would spoil the, the industrial yogurt culture. And so they were spending money trying to figure out how to make their strains more resistant to viral infection. And they actually figured this out. And um, we had the Gardner Awards uh, last week in which they recognize these major discoveries. And you had these two basic, basically industry-based food scientists that got these major awards, which was really exciting. It was really fun to see, actually, among other people. There were some other people that got the same awards. But uh, you do, usually don't think of food scientists at the company making these major breakthroughs. But these, these two fellows, as well as other people, did. And the papers where they showed how this works are really, really fun. So anyway, so the, the idea is that you have this Cas9 CRISPR system to basically, the idea is you've got this protein that will take a guide RNA sequence and make a double-stranded cut in DNA. Well, that is something that we could use, right, to do genome editing. So um, another three scientists, one of which I was on a panel discussion with last night, uh, made the link, and, and they also won Gardner Awards last week, made the, the link, well, what if I don't use a viral why don't, instead of this sequence of this RNA that is complementary to a virus, I'm going to put a sequence of RNA that's complementary to a human gene. And I'm going to put that into a human cell along with Cas9. Well, what's going to happen? So if I put Cas9 into a human cell and the guide RNA has an RNA sequence that's complementary to a human gene, well, it's going to cut the human chromosome in that spot. You're going to get a double-stranded break there. Okay. That can have, if you just cause that break to occur without, um, without uh, helping it along in any way, uh, well, a certain proportion of these chromosomes are going to come back together by non-homologous end joining. We talked about that already, right? The cell's going to recognize that as a, 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 a DNA mutation, in effect, basically a DNA damage. And by a certain, a certain proportion of it will be joined together back by non-homologous end joining. And we talked about how when you do non-homologous end joining, it's not a very good system in that you get nibbling 
of the DNA on the ends. Well, if this is in the middle of a gene, middle of an open reading frame for a protein, and you nibble a nucleotide away and then ligate it back together, well, you've now created, you've, you're out of frame. We talked about the, import, the, the effect of deletions, one nucleotide deletions in the middle of protein coding genes. If you remove a nucleotide from that open reading frame, now you're out of frame. And that pro, this is effectively a way to delete any gene in the genome you want. Right? Alternatively, you can, when you put in the Cas9 and the guide RNA, you can also put in some extra DNA that might be of interest to you. It could be a mutation in that gene that you want to test. It could be, you could, you could put in a whole, this donor DNA could be the DNA that encodes green fluorescent protein. Uh, I don't know if you've come across that. That also won a Nobel Prize a few years ago, but basically it's a protein that glows. It's, we isolated it from jellyfish. Or scientists isolated it. Scientists in Japan originally isolated it from jellyfish. And people figured out this really neat trick. You can basically fuse your protein of interest to green fluorescent protein, make one protein out of it, and now your protein of interest, wherever it is in the cell, it's glowing green. You can actually track where it is in the cell. You can follow it around. So now you can take a piece of donor DNA, a version of your gene, a tag, a version of green fluorescent protein, and when, and we talked about homologous recombination, this double-strand break repair, when the cell fixes this, we talked about how it uses another copy of DNA to basically put that piece back in. Well, if this donor DNA has some homology on the ends that are complementary to the, to the regions that flank the cut, well, then often at a certain rate, not 100%, but often this donor DNA gets integrated into the genome. And so you basically fix the gene by putting in a region that has complementarity, but also an extra little bit that you engineered. So this is basically a way to, which previously in human cells and mammalian cells and plant cells, there were ways to kind of edit genomes, but now it's become much simpler. Much simpler, much faster, much less expensive. And this is transforming the way we do molecular biology. It does. The hope, the, the, this relies on that. It's basically when you put in this guide RNA for a human gene with Cas9, it's treating the human chromosome like a phage DNA. It's finding the right, the respective sequence and cutting it. Yeah. That, that's, that's effectively what's happening. So, so when a phage DNA gets cut, right, uh, I mean, I guess maybe the repair pathways aren't as robust in bacteria. When a, when a phage DNA is cut in the middle of it, that phage, you've now exposed new 3' prime and 5' prime ends to that phage DNA, and it's, de it's degraded. It's destroyed. Okay? Um, in humans, when you do a double-stranded cut, to a certain extent, you do get DNA damage in that spot, but we've got very robust DNA repair pathways that will take that cut and just and put it back together, either through non-homologous end joining or through double-strand break repair. Am I missing your question, kind of? I'm, I'm missing the... Okay. Sure. All right. 
Okay, so that's, so you know, I have some idea about this now, and, and this is probably only going to become more prevalent. It's going to be like, people are saying, you know, we talked about how PCR transform molecular biology, this is also going to likely do the same thing. So, okay, that's it for section uh, two of the course. Uh, again, just to reiterate that which I just covered is not on midterm two, even though it was in section two because I didn't cover it in the time that we did section two. Yeah. Okay, so the question has to do with like, I guess application or, people are doing it right now all over the world in and the thing that is probably most commonly used in is, is using cell lines. So basically in, in the lab we grow human or mouse cells in culture. These are transformed cells that often they came from human patients or they're cells that we uh, transformed in the lab. They're, we have procedures to make them immortalized. and transformed. So basically these are immortalized cells that we study in the lab to study things like cancer or whatever. And that's where most CRISPR work is being done. Now, in theory, you could take, and this has been done also, they've already made mice and monkeys where they took an embryo and put CRISPR-Cas9 in. And effectively, they've now modified the genes for that entire organism. Right? Um, so that's kind of in vivo, more, more so in vivo than, than using cell lines. And then to take that a step further, there's a couple of groups in China at least, that have uh, done this in non-viable human embryos. So basically, human embryos that have genetic defects such that they will not be able to form children, but to show that it could work in a human embryo, they have done the same thing. And this is part of the debate now. It's like, at what point do we decide this is something we may or may not want to do in a more um, systematic way? Uh, Certainly, it's already happening in things like agriculture, plants, and animals. And to what extent you want that to happen in humans is up, is up for discussion right now. People generally don't have an idea of someone that has, I don't know, sickle cell anemia. You could do a bone marrow transplant where you, where you restore the normal gene in that patient such that now, and then you put that fixed blood back in, or bone marrow back into the patient and now that patient has a normal life. That's kind of more along the lines of traditional thoughts for traditional medicine. But when you get into making edits for things that uh, are going to be passed on through generations in humans because you've modified the germline, that's hairier. So. But there's some wonderful literature about this. You can just go into Google and put in CRISPR ethics or something like that and click on the news tab and you'll be reading all night. It's fun. It's like that scene in Jurassic Park. The it's not that old a movie, right? You've seen Jurassic Park? All right. um, we're moving from the question of whether we can do it to the question of whether we should do it. All right, so uh, we'll move into section three now of the course. We're moving, 
we're moving away from kind of central dogma and recombinant DNA and, and into um, basically this is a section on pathways. How this, and there's a special focus on how does the cell take energy from food, effectively, and convert that into energy, all right? So again, similar to the last two sections, some of these things I'm sure in some way you've seen already. And again, similar to the last two sections, we're going to take some of those things that you've kind of seen already and make them more complicated. And the hope is that you're going to have a better understanding as to how biochemistry works by doing that. Okay? So a general definition for metabolism, how do cells store, process, regulate energy usage? Some questions we want to highlight. Uh, how do we transform uh, potential energy? How do we take energy in food, let's say glucose, that'll be the one we focus on, and convert that into the ability to do work? How are they regulated, and then how do we quantify it? So section two, I guess I can tell you, yeah. Uh, if you, section two, we didn't need a calculator. There was no, cal and you don't need a calculator for the midterm on Tuesday. In fact, it says on the midterm, you do not need a calculator. No aids needed. Um, but we're going to need a calculator again for section three. So not much, but a little bit. Okay. So uh, this is an overview of metabolism. This is just, I mean, this is almost complicated to the point of being useless, but the point is, to take away from it is that there's many, many different things happening in the cell all at the same time, and many of them are interconnected. So you've got basically in blue carbohydrate metabolism, in cyan you've got lipid metabolism, energy, amino acids, and there are places where things branch off from one another. So you have intermediates in carbohydrate metabolism that are going to be important to go off and do amino acid metabolism. Obviously, we can't cover all of this, but you know there's been a lot of work over the years to understand all these processes and if we wanted we could have taken any of these processes and focused on them but we're gonna, what we're going to do in the class is focus on a couple of representative pathways um, we're going to focus on carbohydrate metabolism a little bit on lipid and amino acid metabolism and generally these other ones we're not going to cover so much so it's important to understand this idea of what we call intermediate metabolism okay and that kind of gets a little bit to what I was pointing out here right if you've got you know, this molecule here, and you eventually want to get to this molecule down here, there's going to be a lot of steps in between them. It doesn't, you don't get that conversion directly. So this idea of intermediate metabolism is a synthesis of biological compounds occurring in a series of organized steps with well-defined intermediates, which we also call um, metabolites. And the sum of all those steps in the synthesis or breakdown of something is, we call that a pathway. Okay? So one path we're going to cover at some, in some length is, is glycolysis, right? How we basically take glucose and convert it into pyruvate. Well, glycose doesn't go immediately to pyruvate. Uh, there's a number of intermediates uh, from A through, say, F. Uh, and they, they go in a defined order, right? From basically A to B to C to D, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be what we'd call a linear pathway. And there's an important concept of intermediate metabolism is that you typically have an enzyme that catalyzes each step. And so a lot of work we do in the lab to understand how pathways work, uh, this gets back to, I don't know if you have covered this or recall it, this idea of beetle and tatum, this idea of one gene, one enzyme. That was all done in Neurospora where they were showing how uh, this Neurospora fungus that uh, had acquired a particular mutation in a particular pathway you can imagine that if this pathway converts A through F, 
and you've got a mutation in enzyme 3, well, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to convert A to B, and you're going to convert B to C, but now you can't convert C to D, and so you get this accumulation of C, this accumulation of this intermediate. Right? And that was this work by Beadle and Tame that hypothesized that for each of these steps, there's a gene that codes for each enzyme, and then some, the sum of those things will create a pathway. Not all pathways are linear. We're going to also going to cover Krebs cycle. That means we, take, we start with the molecule A. It combines with a molecule G to make a larger molecule B. And then B goes around in a series of steps. And basically, what was put in as A in a fashion comes off in a converted form, H. And you go back eventually to regenerating G to go around this cycle again. So basically, it's like a, you know, kind of like a conveyor belt. A comes in and comes off later as something else, H. But there are intermediates that form as part of the reaction that just move around the, the, the reaction in a cycle. Um, these are relatively self-explanatory. You make B from A, and then B can make more than one thing. You can make C or you can make D, eventually making H and I. And they may be two different things that you want to make more of one versus the other, depending on what's happening in the cell at that time. Uh, spiral, you start with A, you make B, C, and then D. And then you make a version that of A, it looks like A, but it's a slightly different version of A. Uh, A prime, which makes B prime, C prime, D prime. This basically, so an example of this is, would be fatty acid synthesis or breakdown. And we'll talk a little bit about that also. So fatty acid breakdown, you guys understand what a fatty acid is. This would be something like a 16 carbon uh, chain uh, that has a lot of stored energy in it. And if you want to burn that fat, you want to convert that fat into energy, you don't take all 16 carbons and take them off all at once. You take them off in two carbon blocks. 16 becomes 14, 14 becomes 12, 12 becomes 10. And so if you're starting with a 16 carbon chain at A, you do these steps on it to take two carbons off, and you arrive at A prime. A prime looks a lot like A. Instead of a 16 carbon chain, it would be a 14 carbon chain. But then you're basically doing the same steps again on the 14 carbon chain to make a 12 carbon chain. Eventually, the idea of a spiral one is that you run out. And so eventually it stops. But it's this kind of ordered series of steps that happen iteratively, one after the other, to each kind of intermediate of that long that long original substrate. Does that make sense? OK. So uh, we've talked about this already a little bit. The idea of catabolism and anabolism. Together, catabolism and anabolism make up metabolism. But we're breaking down metabolism into two different concepts. Catabolism is basically breakdown. Right? You're taking biomolecules and you're breaking them down. That often is, we're going to talk about that in the context of uh, breaking down a sugar uh, and converting that into energy. Right? So as we break down uh, glucose, this is overall a chemical oxidation reaction. We're taking the uh, electrons, the higher energy electrons you find on glucose, and we're trying to capture that energy. Uh, eventually, those electrons get put onto oxygen to just give off water. But what we're doing is, as we're doing that, as we're 
taking those high energy electrons on glucose and sticking them on oxygen, as, we, as, those, as those electrons move from higher potential energies to lower ones, we're capturing that energy. We're doing that to directly make ATP and we're making, we're reducing cofactors. And this is going to be, we're going to cover this as a, a critical element of, of energy uh, metabolism, energy, um, how we manage our energy stores. Basically, um, as we take electrons off of glucose and intermediates of glucose, we put those electrons on NAD plus to make NADH, NADP plus to make NADPH, and FAD to make FADH2. And then we convert those reduced, electron, those reduced cofactors to also to ATP. Um, so that's the idea of catabolism, breaking something down to, uh, uh, that is oxidizing something to basically uh, generate reduced cofactors in ATP. And this, you can also imagine this as a convergence of pathways. Um, we're basically taking several things and basically breaking them all down into ATP synthesis. The end of the result of it, the whole thing, and that energy can come from several different stores, fats, sugars, this sugar, that sugar. The idea is to bring it all down into basically getting ATP out of it. Whereas anabolism, we're taking ATP, uh, we're oxidizing cofactors, we're regenerating these things, and we're using that ATP energy to build things. And so now we're taking that ATP currency and we might build DNA from it, we might build a membrane from it, we might build a protein from it, effectively. And so we're take, we're, we're, we, here we're banking ATP and here we're spending ATP okay, to, to do many things. Okay. Um, so I've kind of already alluded to this, this idea that uh, ATP, we think of ATP as basically the currency, the energy currency of the cell, right? We store ATP, energy in ATP in the form of some high energy phosphohydride bonds. And this is just a table showing you the delta G not prime of, and we'll talk about delta G not prime, of various compounds. And you can see here's ATP, here's ATP going into ADP, ADP going to AMP, and ATP going into AMP and, and pyrophosphate. These are all very, very high energy exergonic reactions. When you basically break ATP down into ADP, you get a lot of energy for that. So that energy breakdown can be used to build things up, or when you're metabolizing glucose, fats, whatever, and you're making ATP, this is basically the energy you have to pull out of those compounds to make ATP, okay? And so this production and breakdown of the phosphates of ATP form this kind of central theme of energy utilization. Not all enzymes use ATP. We talked about some cofactors in translation that use GTP. But you can imagine that ATP, GTP, these are largely kind of interchangeable. You, your, your GTP stores will be related to your ATP stores. So if you're down, if you don't have enough GTP to do translation, but you've got lots of ATP, it's relatively straightforward for the cell to convert some of that ATP energy into GTP. And so, um, we basically, for simplicity, break it down into studying ATP stores. So we'll talk about some chemical reactions that happen in metabolism. There are many, but uh, just some representative ones. This is kind of the introduction of the met metabolism section. 
it's, it's relatively important to understand this idea, and we've talked about this already a little bit, this concept of redox reactions, or oxidation reduction reactions, right? You guys remember this from, I presume, high school chemistry, right? Do you still do Leo, the lion goes grr, no? So loss of electrons is, is Leo is oxidation, and gain of electrons, grr, is, is reduction. So it turns out that there's a great deal of energy Acquired in cells comes from the oxidation of high energy electrons into progressively less and less reduced forms. Okay? So, and I think I kind of alluded to this already a little bit, but I want to cover it a little, bit, uh, a little bit again. When you're talking about whether something's oxidized or reduced, your general rule is the more bonds of oxygen you have to carbon is the more oxidized it is, and the more hydrogens, bonds to hydrogen you have to carbon, the more reduced it is. So using that rule, the most uh, reduced molecule on this slide is methane. It's a carbon that does not have any bonds to oxygen, only bonds to hydrogen, okay? Whereas this carbon in carbon dioxide has no bonds to hydrogen, only bonds to oxygen, right? You can see here that, you know, the, so the oxygen, the carbon comes with its, you know, four electrons, the oxygen comes with its electrons, and in carbon dioxide they have to kind of share them. Right? So there's a kind of a loss of electrons here. Whereas in methane, the hydrogens come with their own electrons. So basically, this carbon has more electrons around it in its immediate vicinity in the context of methane than this carbon dioxide. Okay? And so as you make double bonds or as you make bonds to oxygen, you're starting to basically loot. The, car the carbon has to sh more and more share the electrons with an adjacent atom. And so, effectively, you get a loss of electrons. And so basically, you can basically look, you know, a, a carbon that becomes double bonded. Now you've got two carbons that are, each have their own electron, but they have to share the other one, so you've lost an electron here. Um, this uh, carbon that's basically interacting with this oxygen, you can basically get the idea. Your general rule is the more bonds you have to oxygen, the more oxidized it is. Um, aldehydes are more oxidized than alcohols. Uh, carboxylic acids are more oxidized than aldehydes. And I think we've talked about that already a little bit. And so what's going to happen is, over the course of energy production, energy ATP, ATP generation, we're going to take a molecule like glucose that has several bonds to carbon in it. Sorry, several bonds to carbon-hydrogen bonds. Right? And we're going to eventually strip all those electrons off of glucose that can be stripped off and eventually put those electrons on basically the most uh, oxidized form you can get, which is basically oxygen. Right? And we're going to make water out of oxygen. And we'll get to that in a second. So, uh, we want to talk about electron acceptors and uh, electron donors, right? So a standard redox reaction, the enzyme that will carry this out, if it's just a redox reaction, most likely the enzyme that does that is something dehydrogenase. Okay? So when you see a we've talked about um, kinases, we've talked about ligases, different various enzymes. If you see dehydrogenase, it's an enzyme that's doing a redox reaction. And usually the first word has something to do with one of the substrates. So we're going to cover some pyruvate dehydrogenase, various dehydrogenases. And the general scheme is this. You've got 
an electron donor, A, with two hydrogens on it that have their own electrons. And those hydrogens uh, and their associated electrons get passed on to B, which is the electron acceptor. Uh, in, that, in the course of that, A becomes oxidized and B becomes reduced. Right? B gains electrons and A loses electrons. So if we're going to break this down, A would be the electron donor, B would be the electron acceptor. Uh, a is the molecule that causes the reduction of B, so it is the reducing agent, and B is the molecule that causes the oxidization of A, so it would be the oxidizing agent. So just a couple terms. Then. So here's a sample redox reaction. We've got lactate. Uh, we've got lactate dehydrogenase. That's the enzyme that's doing it. Uh, the two hydrogens, we're going to lose two hydrogens, and we're going to go from an alcohol group here into basically a ketone group. And so you should be able to look at this and say, okay, what are A, what is H2, what is B and BH2 in this scheme, right? Well, what has got the, ox what has got the electrons and the hydrogens on it first? It's lactate, so that would be kind of AH2, right? And then uh, these hydrogens and electrons are coming off, and um, pyruvate eventually becomes A with, now it's lost these electrons and their associated hydrogens. We haven't talked about where these are going, right? What is becoming reduced? Where, who, who picked up these electrons? Well, that gets back to what we talked about previously, this idea of these cofactors, right? We're going to talk about that a little bit. These cofactors like NAD, NADH. So the major electron acceptor during oxidation of metabolites is NAD+. I don't expect you to know the structure, okay? But you should understand that it looks like adenine. It actually has an adenine nucleotide in it, okay? So this is adenine, this is the sugar. It's got a diphosphate in it, and then it's got this, um, so NAD is a nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, right? So it's kind of a dinucleotide, it's got an adenine, and this is a nicotinamide group. And so what happens is NAD+, plus, which has got this positive charge on it here, will take uh, two electrons and two hydrogens on it, okay, and become uh, one of these two molecules, this NADH, all right? It will pick up uh, an extra uh, hydrogen up here. Uh, one hydrogen is basically lost into solvent as a proton, okay? And it will pick up both electrons, right? So this, you'll get one electron on this hydrogen and one electron on this plus charge, which just becomes uncharged N, okay? So this is basically the number one converter of redox reactions in cells, right? If something needs to be uh, oxidized, then you can take NAD+, pull the electrons off of that uh, electron donor, put those electrons on NAD+, NAD+, becomes reduced into NADH, all right? And now, what we're going to cover in a few lectures is the idea that this NADH now can go on and uh, be metabolized further in the mitochondria to further make ATP. I talked a little bit about uh, NAD+, there's also NADPH. Uh, in NADPH, uh, this hydroxyl group here has got a phosphate on it. So they're very similar molecules uh, structurally, but if you've got a phosphate here, this becomes NAD+. NADP plus or NADPH when it's been reduced, okay? What we find is that uh, 
when you need to um, oxidize something and reduce a cofactor, you're going to use NAD+. Right? When you need to reduce something and your cofactor needs to be oxidized, you use NADPH. Right? So one of them is basically the major electron acceptor, and one of them is the major electron donor. That's why, that, that tends to be why you have these two different forms, the phosphorylated and the non-phosphorylated form. They kind of have different roles. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit about some instances where we use each of these in different contexts. It's not always NAD plus and NADPH. Um, the other major cofactor that we'll talk a little bit about in the class is FAD, or flavin adenine dinucleotide. Uh, also FMN, which is related. Okay. This is what it looks like. Again, you don't necessarily need to know what this, I don't expect you to memorize this. Um, but it's basically got this isoaloxazine ring, <laughs> this very complicated prosthetic group up here, which uh, basically we can uh, put one uh, hydrogen and an electron on to make FADH plus, right? And then we can put a second uh, hydrogen and electron on it down here to make FADH2. Okay, so this uh, FAD can take also, well, for NAD plus, you took two electrons and one proton to make uh, NADH, and one proton was lost to solvent. For FAD and FMN, you take two electrons and two protons to go from FAD to FADH2. Okay. So there's slightly different kind of chemistries involved. One of them, you take both electrons and one of the protons. The other one, you take both electrons and both protons. And this tends to be not as extensively used as uh, NAD+, plus, but there are some specific examples where we use FAD instead of or FMN instead of NAD+, and we'll, we'll cover those. We'll cover some of those. Okay, so that covers uh, the idea of a little bit of um, redox reactions. Excuse me. We'll talk a little bit about these group transfer reactions now. This is, uh, I think conceptually this is not very different than what we've kind of already talked about, the idea of taking a functional group, in this case a phosphate, and not just hydrolyzing it, like that is just adding it across water, but actually transferring it, transferring that functional group to another molecule, okay? Um, one of the most common and important groups and, and that, we've, that we can talk about this is this idea of transferring a phosphate, usually from ATP, directly to a substrate. We've already talked about some examples of this, it wasn't always phosphate that we've trans... So any sort of a kinase reaction would be something similar to this. We take a phosphate from ATP and we put that phosphate on a serine or a threonine. Or uh, we talked about, when we were talking about DNA ligase, we were taking the AMP functional group of the ATP and ligating that covalently to the enzyme as an intermediate during the ligase reaction. So this idea of taking a functional group and transferring it to another one. And this is one of the reactions we're going to talk about, this kind of... Um, this is one of the first steps in glycolysis, right? We're going to take glucose, and we're going to take a phosphate from ATP. We're going to activate glucose by transferring one of those phosphate groups to 
glucose to make glucose 6-phosphate. So this is just a transfer of a, of a phosphate group. And there are multiple examples of group transfer reactions. Another very important group transfer during catabolism is the transfer of an acyl group from a carboxylic acid to the SH group, the thiol group, of coenzyme A, which creates what we call a thioester. And this is the general way the cell activates acyl groups. Okay? So uh, coenzyme A is a cofactor that we're going to come across a few times. Again, structure, I don't, I don't care so much to you understanding the structure. But this is what coenzyme A looks like. Okay? Uh, it's this very large complex. The business end of it is this thiol group here on the, on the, on the end over here. Okay? And what one can do um, is take, uh, so when you have a, uh, the, the, the most famous uh, reactions of this is basically to take uh, an acetate group, which will come from pyruvate, and you activate it by linking it to acetyl-CoA. So that creates a very high energy bond here between this carbon and this sulfur group. So when we say S-CoA, the S that we're talking about here is this sulfur group here. So you've got coenzyme A with this sulfur group, and that becomes, so this S becomes covalently linked to basically an acetyl group in a bond that we call a thioester, right? C, S, and then CoA. And now this very high energy bond, we can take advantage of that very high energy bond to metabolize acetyl-CoA in a way that the cell has basically evolved to be able to, to pull electrons off one at a time of, of this group and basically uh, maximize the ability of, of um, the cell's energy metabolism machinery to, to, to get as much energy out of this as possible. Okay. So we're going to cover this. This is basically almost an intro. Um, the most important carboxylic acid group that we're going to transfer to coenzyme A is this acetyl group, which creates this acetyl-CoA. So acetyl-CoA is basically this CoA thing with basically a CH3CO attached to it. Uh, we've already talked about hydrolysis reactions, right? So this is not the same thing exactly as a group transfer reaction. We're not taking a functional group and adding it to something that we care about. We're just basically breaking it by adding water across it, okay? Um, basically, for a hydrolysis reaction, we're just adding water across a bond to break something. Um, and one of the points of this slide is to show you... Sorry, I can't quite see one. One of the points of this, of this slide is to basically point out to you one of the reasons why uh, hydrolysis of ATP is, is so highly exergonic. Okay? Why is breaking the bonds of ATP so, why does it give off so much energy? Well, when you have ATP in its normal form here, you've got all these very highly negative charged groups uh, in adjacent to one another, and they tend to repel one another. And so if you're adding water across this bond and letting one of them go, well, that's much, much more favored than sticking all these negatively charged groups together next to one another. And so to take a phosphate off and making, in this case, ADP, there's a lot of kind of release of energy in that way. It's a very favored reaction. The other thing is that we've talked, you, you guys have covered in your chemistry, in chemistry classes, this idea of resonance stabilization. 
molecules that can share charge across different forms are going to be more stable than ones where there's more restricted um, distribution of charge. There's more resonance stabilization for a free phosphate, right? You can basically distribute this negative charge across all these oxygens instead of this situation where the, re the negative charge can only be distributed across these two oxygens. So that's another reason why a free phosphate floating around is much happier than these three phosphates linked to one another. And what comes out of this eventually is this idea that just by taking a water molecule and adding it across this phosphodiester bond, you get off a lot of energy. It's very exergonic. So it's got a very negative delta G. And we've covered hydrolysis reactions in other contexts also. We talked about uh, hydrolysis of peptide bonds when we broke peptide bonds in the serine proteases. But it gets back to this idea of just adding water across a bond and breaking it. So this is basically some of what I already talked about. Um, we have more resonance available. We have more resonance structures available for the free phosphate. Then, uh, so there's four possible places we can distribute this negative charge here, as opposed to up in ADP. ATP. Uh, we've got this negative charge. They're all very close to one another. They're not very happy about that. Um, the products, the hydrolysis products of ATP are more easily, easily solvated in water, and we also have a decrease in disorder, right? So uh, by breaking down ATP, we have more molecules all doing things independently of one another rather than all these molecules stuck together in a very ordered uh, structure. Okay, so before we uh, get into the specifics of glycolysis, next class we're going to cover a little bit about this idea of, of some, some more ideas of thermodynamics. So um, again, you guys have covered a lot of this already, so uh, I don't want to take too much time on it, but we're gonna, it's important to have some of these concepts in mind when we talk about why reactions happen in, in glycolysis and in Krebs cycle. So why do chemical reactions happen? Well, according to the second law of thermodynamics, all reactions happen to basically minimize the Gibbs free energy, right? So basically we all, we want to move towards lower energy forms. And that lower energy form can take the form of enthalpy or can take the form of increased entropy, right? We can quantitate that, right? There's a rule for this. Um, the delta G, that is the free energy of the system, will be equal to the enthalpy, the delta H, that is the energy of effectively heat. And you get that by making bonds, breaking bonds. And the entropy, the amount of disorder in the system, Okay, and that's uh, linked to the temperature of the system. And so we can basically measure the spontaneity of a reaction by quantitating this. And for spontaneous reactions, delta G has to be negative. Right? This is the, basically the second law of thermodynamics. The re chemical reactions will not happen unless delta G is a negative number. Right? If, it's a positive num if it's a positive number, the reaction just won't occur. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't make reactions that have negative, that have positive delta G's happen, we can make those reactions happen, but we have to kind of pay for that change in free energy somewhere else. We'll talk about that. So there's a relationship between this free energy equation and equilibrium constants. Okay? So <clears throat> this is basically a summary of uh, the Gibbs free energy equation that I, that I talked about. Here's delta G. Um, this is the enthalpy. You want, for reactions to go forward, you want 
delta H to be negative, right? That's the energy that's released, the heat that's released during the reaction, right? And you want delta S to be positive, right? There's going to be a randomness, uh, an increase in disorder in the system, okay? Well, this change in free energy for a reversible reaction will be proportional or linked to the amounts of the products and the substrates of an equilibrium reaction, okay? So if we have a K, uh, if we've got a chemical reaction, A plus B goes to C and D, well, if we're measuring the abundance of those compounds at equilibrium, right, If at equilibrium the abundance of C to D, C and D is greater than the abundance of A and B, well then you can infer that the reaction, the, spon the, the, the favored reaction is to the right, right? And if, on the other hand, A and B in, at equilibrium are more abundant than C and D, then you can infer that the energetics of the reaction, the Gibbs free energies, it's more favorable to go this way, right? And so, for this particular reaction, if I'm drawing this reaction, A to B going to C to D, right? If the equilibrium constant for this is less than zero, sorry, yeah, is less than, when the equilibrium, when the abundance of this is greater than this, that is the equilibrium constant is greater than one, well, that means that the reaction is favored going this way, and the delta G for that reaction will be zero, okay? On the other hand, if the equilibrium constant is less than one, that is, the denominator is greater than the numerator, right? Well, that, that means that this is favored making, and so that the, the, the delta, the free energy change of going this way, this is an uh, endergonic reaction. It's not favored. The equilibrium, the Gibbs free energy constant will be uh, favored going the other way. And if this is, uh, and when it's one, the delta G is zero. You're basically at equilibrium. Okay. So I'm going to try to, we'll, we'll do a sample version of that in a second. So uh, some concepts we'll cover first. We know that S entropy will increase with volume. The more volume you have, the more disorder. You can think of that as uh, basically um, something that's dissolved into a solute, right? As the, as the volume will decrease, the amount of order in that system will increase, right? So volume for a finite amount of substance will dictate the concentration. Since the entropy and the free energy are proportional to one another, this means that the concentration of the solution will dictate the free energy. This means that the change in free energy depends on the concentration of the substrates and the products of the chemical reaction, right? And that also makes sense. You can imagine that if you have substrates for a reaction, if A needs to find B to make C and D, if the, if the reaction becomes too diluted, then that, they'll never find each other and the reaction won't happen. So it's not surprising to discover, so I'm, we're basically going to do a bit of math as to kind of what I was talking about now or try to illustrate it a bit better. 
Um, it's not surprising to discover that the change in free energy is related to the equilibrium constant. So for this reaction I just drew, you're going to have this equilibrium constant. At a large KEQ means that at I equilibrium, C and D will be in excess. At small values of KEQ, A and B will be in excess. Uh, and this will be dependent on the chemical reaction that you're talking about. So this is the formula that basically relates those two phenomena, right? When a chemical reaction reaches equilibrium, the delta G will be zero, right? This allows us to derive the formula expressed as a relationship between delta G and the equilibrium constant. The delta G naught prime is equal to the negative version of the gas constant times the temperature in Kelvin times the natural log of the equilibrium constant, okay? Why do I say this delta G naught prime, okay? As opposed to delta G, it's a, delta G naught prime is a version of the free energy number, but it's, it refers to the change in Gibbs free energy at standard state. That means the reactants are at 25 degrees Celsius, the pressure is one atmosphere, and the pH is seven, okay? So basically, this is basically a standardized delta G under certain experimental conditions. Okay, so how can we calculate this? So the we're going to convert glucose 6-phosphate into fructose 6-phosphate, okay? So we're going to take one molar of each reagent. We're going to mix them together under standard conditions. At equilibrium, we're going to let that come to equilibrium. And so we've got this equilibrium constant, the fructose 6-phosphate concentration over the uh, glucose 6-phosphate concentration at equilibrium. So basically, my numerator of this reaction, this is just two groups interconverting. There's no A and B. It's just... They can interconvert to a certain rate uh, reversibly, and so you just kind of let that come to equilibrium. And at equilibrium, you're going to have uh, 0.67 molar of fructose 6-phosphate and, and 1.33 molar of glucose 6-phosphate. And we want to know kind of what's the free energy of the conversion, right? Well, we take the value for that. The KEQ for that reaction would be 0.5, and we just substitute that into our equation. So uh, 0.5 equals the minus of the gas constant times the temperature in Kelvin. Sorry. Uh, so the, the chain, we're, try, we're trying to figure out the, the free energy. So we substitute the 0.5 into the equilibrium constant here. And we get this positive number, this plus 1.718 kilojoules per mole. Okay? It's a positive number. Well, that kind of makes sense. If I'm drawing it out this way and I'm for this reaction, I'm drawing it out this way, meaning this is my equilibrium constant, it's in the numerator, and this is in the denominator. If this delta G naught prime is equal to a positive number, plus 1.718 kilojoules per mole, well, that means that this forward reaction is not favored, right? The reverse reaction is favored, which explains why, at equilibrium, you have less of this than you have of this, right? Now, you could write it the other way. If you wrote the, equilibrium, if you wrote the reaction going backwards, glucose 6-phosphate to fructose 6-phosphate, there's nothing keeping you from writing it that way. Well, you're going to get the same, you're going to do this the same way, except now you're going to put uh, this 1.33 over 0.67. You're going to get a different number here. You're going to substitute it in this equation, and you're going to get a negative number. 
It's going to be just the reciprocal of it. So the reaction as written, glucose 6-phosphate to, sorry? Is it? Probably. So sorry. Yeah, probably. I tend to mess things, these things up when I'm trying to. So I've got, in my equilibrium equation, I've got, okay, I've got fructose 6-phosphate in the numerator and glucose 6-phosphate in the denominator. So I should have done it this way. Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry about that. So this is the, the endergonic reaction, and the reverse reaction is the exergonic reaction. Thanks. So basically using this equation, you can take the equilibrium value and substitute it into the equation and figure out the energy of it going one way or the other. The other thing that you take away from this is that by knowing this number, right, you will know at equilibrium the relative abundance of the two things in the reaction, right? So for a number that's very, very positive or very, very negative, like this is plus one kg per mole, kg kilojoules per mole. What if it's plus 30 or minus 30? Well, that means that at equilibrium, there's very, very little of one of the two things, right? It's really, really slanted one way or the other. That means the reaction is really favored one way or the other, as opposed to other things where you're going to see things that equilibrium concentrations that aren't that far from one another. So how do we get reactions that are endergonic to go then, right? Okay, so that, uh, the important thing for, to bear in mind for that is this idea of coupled reactions, right? So you can take two different reactions with two different delta Gs, and if those two reactions will occur in the context of each other, then you can basically get the net delta G for the whole thing. So we've got glucose 6-phosphate that converts into fructose 6-phosphate, and the delta G for that is, it's endergonic, it's not favored. But then what can happen is if glucose 6-phosphate, when it's made, it's converted using ATP hydrolysis into fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, and that is highly favored, it's got a negative, it's got a very negative delta G, well then basically the delta G for glucose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate is the sum of these two delta Gs, negative 12.5, right? And so you would conclude that even though this reaction, glucose 6-phosphate to fructose 6-phosphate, is not favored, the reaction of glucose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate is favored. It's the, the, the full reaction is, is highly favored. And so that's often the way you get reactions that don't want to go to go. You couple them with other reactions that are favored, and you end up with a sum delta G, a net delta G, that promotes, promotes the reaction. Okay. Can't spell. Sorry, there's a typo here. Hydrolysis, hydrolysis. So uh, these are some of the compounds we're going to be talking about in this course a little bit. Again, I don't want you to, I don't want you to uh, memorize delta Gs. That's silly. Uh, I think you should bear in mind that ATP hydrolysis reactions tend to be very 
negatively charged. Um, these are a lot of these compounds are things we're going to be talking about in the context of glycolysis, and so these are intermediate forms of glycolysis. Some of them, and uh, some of them are exceedingly high energy compounds. Phosphorenyl pyruvate is very very to hydrolyze the phosphates in phosphorenyl pyruvate is very exergonic. Um, we're going to be talking about some of these. A lot of glycolysis is based on kind of capturing energy in these high energy compounds and, and doing productive things with them. And so uh, this is an example from a previous textbook of how to use ATP to favor a normally endergonic reaction. Um, it's, the math is not so complicated, but uh, maybe you want to give it a go. So basically you're taking these two half reactions. The, hydrolysis of ATP, right, ATP into ADP. There's a negative delta G for that. And then basically taking fructose and phosphate and making fructose 6-phosphate. You can basically combine these two reactions together, cross some things out, and get this sum reaction, this ATP plus fructose is getting fructose 6-phosphate and ADP. And the sum delta G for that coupled reaction is just the difference in these delta Gs. Okay. And then you can use that reaction to basically figure out the KEQ, the equilibrium constant, for this reaction going from here to here. Okay. So you may want to give that a try, because that's kind of math that is relatively straightforward and you'll probably see again at some point. Any questions on that? Okay, I know that this is all after the midterms, so you're probably only half listening, but uh, we can cover it again in a little while. I'll see you on Tuesday and good luck on the midterm.